Welcome to another edition of The Vinyl Preacher. I'm Zach Paris. I'm the pastor of Lutheran Campus Ministry at the University of Colorado Boulder in America's finest and only institute of higher education in the Buddhist tradition, Naropa University. You may notice that I am not Matt Cato, who's the pastor of St. Mark's Luther Church in the Lutheran Campus Ministry at the University of Southern California. And that is because uh, we had some technical difficulties this week. I was on the road. I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, in a hotel. Uh, and sometimes when you're on the road, you don't control all the variables. So uh, we recorded an entire podcast. Matt was fully present, brought uh, a lot of great insights and uh, that you're not going to hear. But he did bring a playlist that you will hear. Unfortunately, Matt's half of the podcast uh, the Old Testament reading from Job uh, got uh, got uh, disappeared. It don't exist no more. It exists in a highly corrupted file. Uh, but you don't care about the details. <clears throat> but I'm going to bring you up to speed. See, I was in Indianapolis for a conference, and I think, little known secret, uh, Matt and I both may be kind of secret fans of Indiana, in particular Indianapolis. It's a great city for a conference. Uh in the course of my job, I end up in lots of conference-like things. It's not super glamorous. Uh, maybe there was one point in my life when I thought traveling and being in hotels and stuff was glamorous, but I can assure you, young vinyl preachers, it is not a glamorous uh, thing. Uh, and oftentimes difficult, and you don't get all the things you're like used to, and they don't have real coffee and all that kind of stuff. But Indianapolis is a great city for a conference. It's not too small. It's it's a uh, it's Goldilocks. It's the Goldilocks city of conferences. It's not too big. Sometimes the city's too big, uh, and everything's too expensive. And the kinds of conferences I go to aren't super bougie and can't afford the nicest places in the biggest cities. Uh, so we'll be in some weird suburb situation far away from the things that you want to get to. Uh, it's not too big like that, uh, but it's not too small either. Like uh, it's bigger than say Cheyenne. Uh, Wyoming, where you the only conference center that, that I've stayed in in Cheyenne. It's called Little America, and it's some weird place that's like if uh, the people at Versailles ran a funeral home in Wyoming, that's what it would look like. It doesn't make any sense, but it's too small, and you're just trapped in this roadside attraction, basically. That's a mausoleum. It's weird. Uh, but Indianapolis is none of those things. Uh, just a quick hop uh, on a little shuttle gets you from the airport to downtown, and downtown is nice and contained. You can walk around to lots of places. There's a great uh, blues joint that we hit up every year when we're in Indianapolis called the Slippery Noodle. Check it out. It's on the other side of the hotel where we stay. You can walk around and stuff. They had the Super Bowl in Indianapolis, which I've never been to a conference in Indianapolis in February or January, and I can't imagine it's that great. Uh, so so maybe I wouldn't have done that. They did it, and one of the things they did when they hosted the Super Bowl in Indianapolis is they uh, repealed the open container law for the downtown area, and what they did is they decided not to reinstate it after the Super Bowl. So to this day, you can walk around downtown Indianapolis with uh, the alcohol. In fact, at most bars, you can get a to-go cup dead serious you can order a to-go cup from the bars in downtown indianapolis i did not get a to-go cup this time uh, all part of the glory of indianapolis in fact uh indianapolis was the place where uh, hannah and i went on our first anniversary we were living in chicago uh we were of course uh, quite impoverished uh, but we took Hannah's 1997 Buick LeSabre with uh, leather seats no air conditioning uh and we drove it down uh the three and a half ish hours from chicago to indianapolis for a production of spam a lot we found a great deal at a downtown hotel that was being renovated and uh, it was lovely it was lovely We've had nothing but good times in indianapolis uh they're even so secretly cool that the place i stayed this time is a is the crown plaza 
in Indianapolis. I know you care that much about exactly what hotel brand it is. But the cool thing is that in 1986, what they did is they took the old rundown train station in the middle of town and they converted it into a hotel, which is all the rage. Denver's Union Station is super cool and hipster, but we didn't do it until like five, ten years ago. They did this back in the 80s, so I stayed in a train car this week. Uh, they've got train cars still in the hotel, uh, and so renovated them and stuff, and so my hotel room was in actually a train car. I had a train car all to myself. As a child reader of the boxcar children, I was living my best life. Uh, only downside is it's still a functioning train station, and so uh, your room comes with earplugs, because in the middle of the night, the entire hotel uh, shakes, because there are trains traveling uh, just underneath your hotel room. Uh, but lovely, fun, had a good time. I don't normally have good times at conferences. We've talked a lot about that on the podcast here, uh, whether it's Senate Assembly or theological convocations or retreats and stuff. Um, I don't normally, uh, I, it's, it's not a good environment for me. It triggers all of the things that get me super anxious uh, and stuff. But I had a pretty good one. I got a couple learnings that I wanted to pass along to you. We were there meeting with the Lilly Endowment, uh, who's funded a lot of our work in Boulder and in uh, at 99 other campus ministries around the country at public universities to help students do vocational work. Uh, and I had two learnings. I don't always learn things. Um, Matt gives me grief because I either fall in love with a keynote or I hate them. Uh, and this was neither. I have no opinion on the keynote. I'm not even going to mention who it was. Uh, not because it was terrible, but I got medium level stuff and I don't always get stuff so I'm just grateful for the crumbs I've been given so the first thing I have one of the exercises that the keynote had us do uh, was write down the words and the phrases that we used when we were first describing a sense of call to professional ministry to to being a person who wears a funny shirt and then next to them write down the words and phrases the thoughts that we have when we currently think about our vocation my takeaway was that the words, I didn't fully participate. I want to be really honest here. I didn't write anything down, but I thought about it, which I thought was enough. That's like, that's a good level of participation for me. I didn't fully protest, but I participated enough where I thought about it and came away with the reflection that the words that I used originally to describe my sense of call were much more romantic than the words I currently use to describe my sense of call. To get into thinking about how I think about the way I live my vocation as a professional ministry person, uh, I went through the door of family vocation, which has been an intense thing for me over the past two and a half years or so. And so what are the ways that I live into my vocation as, um, in particular, as father uh, to a two and a half year old. And you would not be surprised, uh, as the father of a two and a half year old who's just gone through potty training, uh, that one of the words that I came up with was resignation. The romantic words that we normally kind of think of, of fulfillment and joy, uh, those are not words that, that are always the most motivating in my vocation as, as father. They happen, yes, just like they happen in ministry, but. When Zoma poops on the floor, I don't clean it up because it gives me a great sense of fulfillment or joy. I clean it up because that's uh, the place and the time, the situation in which I find myself, and that is the role God has called me to play in that role. And so then I begin to play with it. It sounds a little sad and uh, not as kind of sexy. Call stuff can be sexy, right? Like Jesus speaks to me in a small, still voice, and my life has immense purpose in everything I do, and that I'm fully actualized as a human. But... I think there is something, I started down this path of, of wrestling with resignation as call, uh, or call as resignation. Uh, in particular, for students, so much of their sense of, of discerning call, of discerning how they're going to live their meaning and purpose, the meaning and purpose that God has given them, 
uh, in the world, and it becomes so much about what they're going to do that it's all about the future, about the next job, about the next thing I'm going to do. What might it mean, perhaps a more helpful way uh, into a call, would be to resign ourselves to the time and place in which we find ourselves. What might it look like to resign ourselves fully to the present, uh, to be present, right, with the poop that's on the floor, uh, with the people, imperfect as they are and not as dreamy uh, as we might want them to be. Uh, maybe the promise is that's the place where God finds us, and maybe that's the place where God's call finds us. So, see, look, I learned things. I went on the road, and I learned things, and I came back, and I'm sure we'll do something with it. The other learning is, is something that I think we'll do a lot more of. Uh, it ties in with, um, I think we'll do a lot more related to this learning than resignation. I don't think students are ready for me to be a wet blanket to tell them just to worry about what's in front of them. Uh, but the other thing, I would do a workshop. That's right. I had the opportunity to not go to a workshop. I had signed up for them. Uh, and full disclosure, again, I didn't exactly participate correctly. I was signed up for a workshop and decided at the last minute I was not going to go to it because I'd overheard it during the session before, uh, uh, the session I signed up for and went to. Uh, and so I was pulled out of that and I was like, I'm not going to do that. That would be painful. And um, triggering for me. But I went to another workshop I didn't sign up for. I I, uh, I crashed a workshop and I crashed a workshop on art on a call as bricolage, uh, which is a word that, that, of course, none of us really know what it means. Uh, but it means throwing stuff into a box, right? And, and hopefully at the end, when you throw all that stuff in the box, it becomes art. Uh, the person who led it is Emily McGinley who's actually a, a shy town person. We were in Hyde Park at the same time. She's still in Chicago. She is uh, a Presbyterian, PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church in the United States, minister in uh, serving at a United Methodist Congregation Urban Village, which is down in Hyde Park, other side of the Midway, uh, south side of the Midway. Uh, and she led it and did a fantastic job, mostly, I think, because Particip we it was one of those kind of dumb things that normally I'd roll my eyes at, uh, that there was Play-Doh and uh, pipe cleaners and all that kind of stuff on the table, um, and we were invited to do some crafty stuff. Our students know that I am the worst at art, uh, and my anxiety uh, and stress do not make me a good artist. Um, and so I did not create anything particularly impressive, nothing that you would, uh, nothing that's going to get auctioned at Sotheby's. Uh, but instead, what I think was most helpful about it was that that space gave me permission to resign myself to the present. Uh, it gave me permission as uh, my colleague John Tiro, who we're hoping to get on the pod soon, uh, who's out at, at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville at Tyson House, where I did a brief stint during my internship. Um, uh, but as, as John called it, uh, permission to waste time, right? We had, um, I was given 45 minutes to waste, um, which is really kind of a, a, the space necessary to do the work of vocation, I think, um, and a space that we're not often given. We waste lots of times, but not in that sort of open way. I, I waste time scrolling and scrolling for the tweet that's going to be life-changing, but never, ever comes um, rather than resigning myself to what is. Uh, so that's the thing I think we're going to do. We're actually doing it this week, uh, stolen it from some other places, but it gives me a little more justification for doing it. This week with students, we're doing a Bob Ross night. Uh, so they're going to paint. We're going to watch a Bob Ross video. One, to help them relax, but also I think a part of helping invite folks to resign themselves to the present, to give them permission to waste, uh, to waste time in the moment, which is... I'm afraid too often how time is framed for us, that spending it in the moment is a waste if it's not leading to something 
further down the road. Finally, sad news to report. I'm recording the week of post-Saturday. It was pre-Saturday, so Matt and I talked about the big Colorado-Southern California football game uh, that I was fairly confident the Buffs could win. And I was wrong. I was wrong. Uh, So they lost. Congratulations, Matt. Um, We'll talk about football again uh, next year when we play. The Buffs have never beaten Southern California, which is sad. But uh, if you keep trying every year, uh, Murphy's Law says eventually, if it can happen, it will happen, given an infinite amount of time. So hopefully, climate change isn't gonna gonna put a stop to the bus winning against Southern California one day. The first text this week, uh, which got deleted, is Job thirty-eight, mostly one to seven. Job, you know Job. He's sad. He's disappointed. It's repetitive. In fact, this whole scene gets repeated over and over again, uh, a couple more times. Matt talks a lot more about it when we get to the playlist. So. Skip ahead if you're super into Joe to Matt talking about it during the playlist. Uh, he gets back into it and, and does a great job talking about it. Uh, but it's time to get to the actual recording. We're going to go to it now. Uh, where we just It's just about the place where we begin to talk about uh, Mark 10, 35 to 45. Uh, and so I start setting it up by talking about how what comes right before verse 35. And that's Jesus giving a passion prediction. Um, so... That's the background you need to know. Jesus is giving a passion prediction. He's saying, hey guys, I'm about to die. And then, of course, the disciples do something stupid. Enjoy, and we'll be back at you next week. No technical difficulties. You'll be getting it in your feet on Sundays. Uh, Keep it vinyl. Um, Do you remember what I was saying at all? (laughs) Um, Sons of Thunder. Dumb questions. Just out of this description of Jesus' death. Yeah, so Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me, and uh, you're going to betray me. They're going to flog me. Uh, They're going to mock and spit on me. Uh, And then immediately after that, immediately, James and John, the sons of thunders, came forward, and they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Like, do you even need to state that out loud, you dummies? Like, oh, and somehow Jesus does not smack them in the face. All right, what do you need? Oh, you jerks. He sees it coming. Uh, and uh, they asked to sit at his right and his left hand, and Jesus says, uh, you do not know what you're asking. And then you get kind of a fun question, or a fun and interesting question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with I am baptized? And then they make one of the craziest confessions, Matt. <laughs> it, it, it literally means it's to be able, but also do you have the power? Do you have the power to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized? And they say, the sons of thunder, that kind of makes sense. They say, uh, we've got the power. <laughs> I've got the power. I've got the power. Uh, and then Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But I'm just a broker here. I do this insider-outsider thing. Uh, the places in the kingdom to come uh, is not done by me, but by those who, uh, the one who sent me, it's, it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Um, so, of course, somehow, this doesn't stay just within the three of them. The rest of the disciples hear about it. Uh, it turns out they are not happy with the sons of thunder because they're asking to be exalted over and above the rest of the disciples. Uh, Robert and Melina talk about how... Uh, how this is pretty common uh, in this sort of a group where the allegiance the, uh, within the group is to the, 
the center person, so the relationships among uh, all the other folks, uh, that's not what binds it together, but your relationship to the center character. So these sorts of factional mm-hmm. things uh, were bound to happen. happen. And then we get some more reversal stuff. Last week we had reversal, first, last. Uh, some of the stuff I read this week that I thought was more helpful uh, was in framing this reversal stuff, not as reversal, but as an invitation into reciprocity. Roba and Molina say that in the ancient Near East, especially in poor communities and in small communities and agrarian communities, um, the society functioned much more, the economy functioned much more with uh, an understanding of reciprocity. Um, that we did for one another with the expectation that they would do for us uh, versus large-scale societies, cities, economies, uh, where the the produce rate is all taken to a grain house and there's a hierarchical figure who redistributes the foods and the supplies of the of the community which tends to benefit the hierarchical character who is uh, redistributing the food and the stuff and so, uh, so really, this is this invitation into this uh, kind of grassroots. The, the the Judean society, the Judean elites, functioned with that idea of a, of a of a society of retribution or redistributive. I guess not retribution, redistributive understanding. Um, and that Jesus as this grassroots character is inviting the whole of society into that small fictive family group uh, that comes when you share the cup. Yeah, it does seem to be about um, praxis and practice, right? Um, this is the way that the this discipleship community is supposed to live together. What a strange affirmation of humanity in verse 39. We start with a dumb, dumb question, and, and I preached a pretty good sermon last week on how bad, uh, that featured prominently how bad the disciples are at, at following Jesus' teaching. Uh, so when Jesus asks, are you able to share my cup? Uh, and they proclaim, yes, we are able. I want to be like, hey, have you guys seen the past, like, I don't know, the whole like rest of the gospel to this point? Um, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus affirms it. The cup I drink, you will drink. And the baptism that I, uh, in which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So an affirmation, a strange, unexpected affirmation that we are able, we are we have the power. It's so interesting. Like, so I get to, I get that what Jesus says overlaid with two things. I mean, on the one hand, it's looking ahead, it's foreshadowing the actual cup that he's going to drink at that last supper and this baptism, which we're assuming is, is this death on the cross, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a weird metaphor for that, to call it a baptism. Yeah, uh, and that may not be what they're thinking about when the, when he says drink the cup, even though he's clearly explained to them a million times. But then those two images, I mean, those are our two sacraments as well, right? So here the here's this sacramental image that gets overlaid later on uh, in Christian tradition. But but what's that? I mean, gosh, like it's a response that really I don't know. It opens up a lot of layers. And then if you think about that fact that we like. We do do this every week, right? We drink the cup every week. We're not being crucified. And yet there is some participation. Like we're, we're participating in, in this thing that Jesus is talking about, right? Whether we realize it or not, uh, and probably most weeks we don't. But what, what is it that we are 
uh, drinking? What is it that we are being baptized into? One more little. Uh, where am I going? Yeah, one more little social science nugget that might be helpful before we get. Not that we shouldn't end up in that kind of mystagogical place pretty quickly, but um, one of the things that I've been has been a thing I've I've been hitting on. I think the past couple of months months or so is the understanding that the in the ancient Near East was a limited goods society. The expectation was that there was just limited amounts of everything. So that's what's wrong with being rich is that you're taking more than your fair share. So Jesus asks, the language here around cup is in one sense getting to share in Jesus' portion of, of the limited life that has been given to him. So it's, it's a sharing in, sharing in the life of Jesus, uh, which I guess shoots us pretty quickly to that mystagogical place, but sharing in the portion uh, that has been given to this person who at this point seems to be an incredibly high honor, uh, incredibly honorable, powerful person. Yeah. And you get this radical affirmation. You get to share in the life of Jesus by sharing the cup. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think it's worth exploring what that means, right? Here's a, go to that mystagogical place and explore that. In the midst of a gathered community that's about to do that uh, on a Sunday or whenever it is that you worship. I mean, gosh. Mystagogy is basically just preaching around the sacraments. The study of the mysteries is what the, the fancy word we're using. Fancy word. Because this is really the first time that we've gotten that in this whole like repetitive um, teaching, these two months, September and October, of Jesus walking along the way, teaching these disciples that continually do not get it. And here we get some sacraments brought into it. So, I don't know, maybe that's a way in that makes it a little less repetitive. Yeah. Last thing I'll say on how to preach it, especially coming off of last week when there was a first and last reversal, that the first will be last and the last will be first, that we can think about that movement in the kingdom as a, as a one-time event that begins and ends, and that's it, right? So you end up with this motivation to make sure you're... I kind of envision it as people fighting to be the last person in line. Uh, it's like... Uh, if you've seen the HBO mockumentary uh, Tour de Pharmacy, it's hilarious. You should watch it. Uh, don't let your children watch it. And uh, everyone in the Tour de France uh, gets disqualified except for five riders, uh, and it becomes this ridiculous thing. Uh, and they're all trying to not be drafted off of, so trying to go as slow as possible to make sure they're not the person <laughs> in front. And they get passed by like an elderly woman out, woman out on her like power walk. Uh, so it becomes this thing with motivations just to make sure you're last so that you can be first later. But I think what I like that reciprocity angle because it calls us into, uh, it describes a much more dynamic reality where we give and we receive, where we share in this cup uh, that gives us life, but we share our cup as well. And once again, like this is our, this is our last text before Bartimaeus, right? We've been spending all these weeks leading up to this thing that's going to cast a light back on all the stuff we've read. Uh, so be thinking about that, too. Right? Set your people up. Set them up for next week. When you're definitely preaching on Bartimaeus and not John. <laughs> Remember the Reformation, the same Reformation text he preached on 8,000 times. <laughs> for which you have you know, nothing new to last say. Year. It was the 500th last year. Just, you know, just 501 G's this year. So just move on and do <laughs> Bartimaeus. Boom. What do you, what's your Job, what's the Jobian playlist this week, man? <laughs> I think that God, so I just want to, I just want to come back around, Zach, because I forgot to mention this. So I thought this was all it was, because um, I'm not a, 
pastor who went to graduate school to study the Bible. So what if after you did, God's though? Study, Think about how good you'd be at your job. So God continues after this little passage for a whole other chapter, all of chapter 39. And then God says, all right, anyone who argues with God must respond. And Job responds to God, I've spoken once, but I'm not going to answer again. Like, I'm, I'm out. And God's like, so then the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind. And I had to be like, wait, didn't I just read that? Yes, because he just repeats. God answers him out of the whirlwind again and goes on for another two chapters talking about all the different animals and things in the world. Can you do this? Can you do this? Including, here's a choice passage, the ostrich's wings flap wildly, though its pinions lack plumage. For it leaves its eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed in the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that a wild animal may trample them. It deals cruelly with its young, these ostriches, as if they were not its own. Though its labor should be in vain, yet it has no fear because God made it forget wisdom and given it no share in understanding. Um, and then there's a footnote here that says, uh, this folk tradition about ostriches does not accord with facts about their nature. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's so much good biblical unpacking that you could do with that. The voice of God. Uh, <laughs> a folk tradition that has no basis in fact. Look, God uh, has just an incredible riff here in Job 38 through 41, which I think sounds so reminiscent of Maui in the movie Moana. With that whole You're Welcome song. This is the You're Welcome this song. This is the You're Welcome song. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Oh, I'm picturing God as Maui uh, with your welcome, uh, including the little Lynn manuel written rap. Uh, pretty fantastic. Maui, you're welcome. Uh, all performed by, of course, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Noted, <laughs> noted vocalist. Noted vocalist. <laughs> oh, and then um, uh, I kind of go with uh, Johnny Cash, The Man Comes Around. Mm from his 2002 album because he ha- keeps having there's like this refrain that comes it's a great little song with all this like apocalyptic revelation imagery but he's got this refrain that comes back around the thorn trees in the whirlwind and it's just like just the way he says whirlwind uh, just every time I see that word I think of Johnny Cash singing it in the song the man comes around mm. and then both with uh, you got the sons of thunder and you got God speaking from a thunder cloud you gotta you gotta pull in imagine dragons thunder don't you, you gotta oh. do it there you go. Well done, Matt. Well mm-hmm. done. This has nothing to do with the songs I'm about to pick for the playlist, Matt. But the other day, I fell, uh, the other night, fell into a YouTube uh, rabbit hole of watching the music videos from the 90s that I remember being amazing. Uh, it was so much fun. Uh, started it off with uh, Mariah Carey's I'll Always Be Your Baby. Uh, You'll Always Be My Baby. Um, with the summer camp thing, uh, the presidency of the United States of America, peaches where they're in the the ninja and stuff. So much fun. But Matt, I uh, I like the imagery here on on fill my cup. Uh, I mean share my cup, uh, which leads me to think about filling my cup. Uh, and a thing Jesus might have said before he shared his cup is uh, Mazel Tov. Uh, so we're going uh, <laughs> black eyed peas. I got a feeling. I think this is the celebratory text. Uh, wow. We are able. I've got the power. What's the name of that song? We'll just throw that in there as well. Um, power. Who sings I Got the Power? Uh, Jim Carrey and Bruce Almighty. Well, yeah, that's right. That's Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Maybe that's it. It's going to be like some kind of music factory. That's what I'm guessing. Right. Snap from the album World Power. World it's getting, Power. It's getting, it's getting mm-hmm. kind of hectic. 
This might be actually a good song to put on. I have to really listen to it outside of just making the joke. I'm a lyrical Jesse James. Wow. I forgot about this song. Quality I possess and say I'm fresh. When my voice goes through the mesh of the microphone that I'm holding. Copywritten lyrics, so they can't be stolen. It's a song by the German music group Snap from their album World Power. Wow. The more you know, the more you know. Finally, Matt. I like that, that, that reciprocity thing. I like going back to the grassroots. This is Jesus leading a grassroots uprising, taking it to the gates of Jerusalem, to the, the people who just redistributed and taking their cut with taxes and tithes. Uh, so I got to go Tracy Chapman talking about a revolution. People going to rise up. Good songs. We got a good one. Got a good one. Or a good enough one. Also, we're going to have everything by John Mellencamp in honor of... That's right. I, sat, I talked to somebody on an airplane today, Matt. I never talked to anyone on an airplane today. Ever. Not just today. But I did. Uh, a person who sat next to me started a conversation with me when they saw I was reading a little bit of uh, Wendell Berry and uh, wanted to talk about it. So I figure if you want to talk about Wendell Berry, you're okay. And uh, they, they're a Bloomington person. They live in Bloomington. So we're trying sense. to B-Town. Bloomington's a cool place. Have you ever been to Bloomington? I have not. I have not. So since you're in Indiana, I'm going to close the podcast with my favorite story about Indiana, which is that I went to college in Indiana for four years. And by the end of it, I was at Valparaiso University. And I just said, Chris, who was my girlfriend at the time, I said, I don't care where we go next. I just got to get out of the state of Indiana. And then about two weeks later, she came to me and said, well, I got a full ride to grad school at Indiana University. <laughs> and I said, congratulations, because that's what you say. That is what you say. Uh, but we moved. Well, eventually I joined her in Bloomington, Indiana, home of IU Bloomington. And it uh, turns out Southern Indiana, very different from Northern Indiana. Um, a lot of racism. But there is this little pocket of... Uh, of like funky college town. It's like a little, it's like a little boulder right there. It's called there it and it's just like this little island in the sea of red, little island in the sea of red, uh, Bloomington, funky little college town, uh, a super fun place to live for a couple of years. Uh, and I look back on it fondly. So Indiana, it's got some bright spots. There you go. I, uh, I'll add one song to the playlist, Matt. I just step on your, your lovely story is uh, the first CD, the first musical album on CD that I ever received uh, was the soundtrack to Where in the World is Carmen San Diego uh, that featured prominently the work of acapella trailblazers, uh, Rockapella. Uh, and Rockapella has a song called Indiana. <laughs> we'll put it on the playlist. I love it. It's actually a pretty catchy song. So, uh, can I... <laughs> I'm gonna wanna, <laughs> I will raise you one more Indiana song, Stuck in Indianapolis mm. by the Bottle Rockets. Will do. I'll play it nonstop as I walk around the city center with my to-go cup of alcohol. Matt, I gotta go sit in a big room and sit in the back go and be it. uncomfortable and stressed out. Uh, and uh, that's what I gotta do. So it's been good. It's been real. Have fun. It's weird when you switch it up, right? <laughs> Real vinyl.